Father, we thank you for your holy word. Therein is contained everything pertaining to life and godliness that we need to honor and to glorify you. Therein is contained the full disclosure of your worth, your works, and your attributes. And your law, your, the way that you have laid out, Father, the instructions for us to glorify you and live in light of the truth. More than this, therein is laid out for us the plan of salvation. The only way that our sins can be atoned for, that your blood can wash away through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, the obligation of justice before a holy God, having nailed the debt that we owe to you upon the cross, having received atonement and having received atonement by Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, because of his complete work on Calvary, fully and finally finished. We thank you, God, for these things. We thank you for the record of your scripture from the beginning to the end. And as we turn to the pages of old to see how you have laid out in your word the plan of salvation, I pray that our hearts would be stirred, that our faith would be encouraged, that our proclamation would be clear, and that your word and your name would be declared and and proclaimed through your people in the lives that we live, in the words that we say, that your glory might advance in this world as the waters cover the sea. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What a privilege it is this morning to open up the scriptures together and to behold God's infallible word. Would you turn with me to Genesis 4 today? Verses 10 through 26, the second half of the chapter in our Genesis series will be our primary text. Today's sermon comes to us under this title, Generational Archetypes. The book of Genesis, indeed the rest of Scripture, is written in a generational format or framework. It is the record through history, and one of the reference points is different lineages that are important that record and provide for us a record of God's working in this world and especially as it relates to the redemption of man in light of the fall. So there, uh, it, it's no surprise then that we have generational archetypes. What's an archetype? Archetype is a pattern or an example. It is a, a, a highlighted event or persona that, that establishes for us something to refer to later. It is a typical way that God has moved in an individual that helps us understand how God will move in the future. Or, in the case of our text today, it lays out for us the typical effects and legacy and influence and fallout of our sin to understand ourselves better in light of the fallenness of human nature. And so today we have several generational archetypes that we will look at in the context of Genesis 4. The aim of this morning's message is to showcase the grace of God, realizing how little we deserve it. To marvel at, to proclaim, and to revel in the grace and mercy, the undeserved favor of our God, realizing how horrible the the state of the human heart truly is. And this is evident in our text today, especially in the case of Cain, and even further illustrated in the case of Lamech. So with your Bible open to Genesis 4, 10 through 26, would you stand with me out of reverence for the holy word of God 
And behold, in your hearing, as the Scriptures are proclaimed to you today. Genesis 4.10 And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he, built a, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Ired, and, to I, and Ired fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, verse 23, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Our text today features principal personas and legacies. Legacy, of course, is what is left behind or what is proclaimed, what is um, the uh, reputation and the influence of an individual, especially in their passing, the sum of their life and its summary, if you will, and as, as it affects the uh, future generations. So our text today features principal personas and legacies marking or characterizing the fallen human experience. These patterns are so basic to post-fall living that they appear immediately in the history of mankind. Furthermore, until the conditions responsible for uh, these issues no longer plague the human experience, we should expect this pathological corruption to present itself through the course of history in a yet unresurrected post-fall world. That is to say, the experience and the evidence of the influence of sin in the heart, life, and legacy of a Cain and a Lamech is something that is not foreign to us today, 
but because the nature of man is the same now and must be redeemed, and without being redeemed, it will evidence uh, the sin that so systemically corrupts our whole being. Because this is the case, uh, the lessons of Cain and Lamech and so forth are instructive for us today. They give us an archetype of the influence of evil upon the human condition after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Later references in Scripture confirm this idea. Would you note two of them uh, with me this morning? The first cross-reference will be 1 John chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. 1 John 3, 12. The author writes, he, the apostle tells us, quote, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He goes on, do not be surprised, brothers, by the world, if, or that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so you see, thousands of years later in the New Testament, the archetype of Cain, the example of Cain, is referenced. Why? Because it tells us something of the human heart. We are to expect evil in this world. We are not to be surprised when the world hates us. Why? Because the sin that Cain wore on his sleeve still plagues the human condition yet today. And without our heart being changed, it is no surprise that the same types of evidences of the corruption of the human soul would present themselves in our experience. Jude chapter 1, of course only one chapter in this little book, tells us in similar language in verse 10 the following, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Here Jude is describing the irrational rebellion of those who hate the things of God, despise His holy word, and make themselves enemies of God's people. These are the kinds of people who blaspheme. They blaspheme because they do not understand, but this understanding isn't just due to ignorance and some natural naivete. No, it's due to a blindness, a willful blindness, a self-deception. They, they act like unreasoning animals. And they respond to their base nature instead of conforming and repenting to God's standard and conforming to His Word. Woe to them! They are those who can be compared to Cain or other examples of metastasized error of the human heart that makes its way out or that manifests itself in rebellion against God's holiness. Balaam, Korah, two other examples. And so we see by way of these references in Scripture that the experience of those who've gone before in part serves as an archetype for us to understand the nature of the human heart and furthermore, our need for salvation. These authors make clear the events of Genesis, such as the rebellion of Cain, serve as an archetype that we might repent of our own sin and also dispel any naivete in our own hearts as to the depraved condition of man's soul through the ages. Not only does the legacy of Cain serve to illustrate the hideous nature of sinful man, but thankfully and hopefully it also magnifies 
the long-suffering of our God. The Lord, after all, spares the life of Cain and expands, extends the uh, lifespan, indeed, of this whole fallen realm generally. And in so doing, the Lord extends the opportunity for repentance. And in so doing, that is, suffering with this wicked world all through the centuries, the Lord is all the while reaping a greater harvest of souls as men call upon the name of the Lord in every generation. Turn from their Cain-like, turn from their Lamech-like behavior and place faith in the future son. Or place faith, from our perspective, in the Son who has come in Jesus Christ. As Genesis continues to unfold, we behold the account of the legacy and lineage of the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And a reminder of Genesis 3.15 in this regard. The Lord, proclaiming judgment over the serpent, says the nature of things will be as follows. Quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, excuse me, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the nature of things following the fall places all humanity in two categories. In the language of Genesis 3.15, they can be described as the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Who is Cain? Is he of the woman that is the future hope in faith in God's provision through the Messiah to come who will come through the lineage of woman, or is he the seed of the serpent, those who identify with the promise of the devil in the first place and disregard the word of God and make themselves out to be a God in his stead and in their radical autonomy declare war against the Holy One, of, against the Holy One who had created this world in the first place, seeking to be their own God. That is correct. Cain falls into category two. He is of the seed of the serpent. These family lines thus in Genesis, though similar in superficial ways, if you compare the legacy of Seth, for instance, to the legacy of Cain, sometimes names are similar. They share the same parents going back to Adam and Eve. They share the same basic world and you know, living conditions, environment, economy, culture, so forth, in some ways. But these similarities are superficial. The real difference or the differences are an extreme contrast, especially spiritually speaking. And these contrasts are the ones that are actually substantive. And they establish an eternal chasm. That is to say, an eternal chasm separates the destinies of those who are of the seed of the woman versus those who are of the seed of the serpent. So what can we learn from the legacies that we read of in our text today? Well, let's consider them under this heading, early legacies and their hallmarks. Or you could say early legacies and their telling characteristics. Number one, Cain's legacy. And there are several things that Cain's legacy is marked by. Several hallmarks of Cain's legacy. Briefly, we'll expand in a moment. First, blood pollution. Secondly, the pathology of unbelief. Thirdly, common grace. And fourthly, the city of man. Those are four hallmarks at least that we can perceive that we can observe in our text today of Cain's legacy. Secondly, we have a great, 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 great a grandson of Cain, five generations, Lamech's legacy. Lamech's legacy is marked by contrast to the legacy of Seth. It's marked by perversion of the family, also cultural development. 
and tyrannical autonomy. And finally, this morning, we'll touch upon briefly and expand in future weeks, Lord willing, Seth's legacy. Seth's legacy is marked as the appointed son. It's also marked by corporate worship. And also, it holds out hope, not only for salvation, but for Abel's vengeance. These are the legacies in Genesis 4, second half, and some of what they hold out for us by way of example and archetype. First of all, Cain's legacy. Cain's legacy is marked by blood pollution. What is blood pollution? Well, first of all, let us remind ourselves of the consequences of Cain's sin in our text. Again, Genesis 4.10, the Lord said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And here is the consequences that are declared by the Lord for Cain's sin in verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Notice the similarity, but it ups the stakes a bit from a prior declaration of judgment. This is Genesis 3.17, the second portion of the verse. As a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, the following is declared to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So there's something of a, of a progression here. It goes from bad to worse. Cursed is the ground because of you, and now Cain, because he murdered his brother in cold blood, of him it's proclaimed, cursed from, you are cursed from the ground. It, it goes on, and of course, that to tell us that the uh, ground itself has been polluted, so to speak. It has opened its mouth to receive his brother's blood. Dramatic language that illustrates to us that there are dire and protracted and uh, tangible consequences for the slaughter of innocent blood. It does not go unnoticed by the Lord in His justice. What is blood pollution? Turn to uh, Numbers 35, would you, this morning? Later on in the law, the concept of the land being negatively affected by the blood of the innocents is expanded. In Numbers 35, there are provisions that the Lord establishes in the law for involuntary manslaughter. That's how the chapter begins. The whole chapter is instructive as a parallel to Genesis 4, in fact. These cities are called cities of refuge that are commanded to be built in Numbers 35, and that's the place where you go to seek to have your case heard if your claim is not guilty due to, I did not intend to kill someone, involuntary manslaughter. And so in that case... Provisions were made in the law for a place of refuge. Otherwise, if you were guilty, and if it was shown by a testimony of two or three witnesses that you had taken innocent blood in cold-hearted uh, malice and forethought, then the following was declared by way of God's terms of justice. This is Numbers 35.30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, uh, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom from him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. 
You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. In this parallel text, Numbers 35, we see that an unrepentant sinner's work becomes his curse. This is true in the case of Cain. That is to say, the relationship between man's sin and his environment, the very land where he lives, his dominion efforts are all represented here, are affected uh, by his uh, w- willful, and neg- and willful and intense breaking of the law of God and taking into his own hands human life. Justice is served and in that the land remains polluted by the blood until justice is served. The land remains polluted by the blood of the innocent. As we contrast in the text of Numbers 35, even the notion of cities of refuge with Genesis 4, Cain goes on to try to make for himself a safe haven. He does not take uh, he does not even take in stride the punishment that God gives him, though he deserved death, and this is in, in itself is an expression of God's mercy. He is uh, distraught and upset with the judgment that God delivers to him, saying that his relationship with the land will be affected, he will be uh, destined to be an exile and a wanderer. And so Cain rebels against this notion and seeks salvation for himself, presumably, by building a city. But there is no city that will provide safe haven if it is constructed by man's means and man's way and man's ambition and man's efforts and man's false hope for salvation. There is only hope in the city of refuge, the place of God's design that represents His uh, salvation, the provision for the atonement of sins that He has established. It is according to His terms. This is a vain attempt that Cain has launched in Genesis 4 to build for himself a city of refuge. No, he is guilty of of the shedding of innocent blood. Blood guilt is upon his head. And this blood guilt renders his relationship with the land affected. He is responsible for uh, for blood pollution in the area of his habitation. Now there is a further reference to blood pollution in Scripture. And one might ask, does any of, the, any of this have relevance to our situation today? Let me read for you one more text and then comment on that question. This is from Psalm 106. In Psalm 106, there is a reference in the history of the people of Israel to moments where they were guilty of blood pollution. And notice this particular example, verses 37 through 38, speaking of the rebellious children of old, says in verse 36, they served their idols, which became a snare for them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. I believe today marks what some in the pro-life community have labeled a Sanctity of Life Sunday. It is an occasion that many take to speak to a great atrocity 
a great travesty, a great holocaust in our land, a great shedding of innocent blood that began effectively, at least through the sanction of law in this country, 46 years ago. 46 years ago, the Supreme Court in our land ruled in the infamous case Roe v. Wade that abortion was a constant, on demand was a constitutional right for uh, the mother who would like to be to, who'd like to terminate a pregnancy by taking the life, the innocent life that was growing that is growing within her womb. In this, uh, on this same week, on the very anniversary of this infamous court ruling that brought into the experience of our nation under the sanction of law, codifying injustice by statute, the so-called right of a mother to take the innocent life of her child, the state of New York ruled, greatly expanding access to abortion on demand, effectively up to birth to the cheering crowds in the legislature of that area of that area of this nation. New York City is the arguably the flagship city for America. That metropolitan center, that population center represents America in a fairly significant way. I ask you this question, is it the city of man or is it a city of God? So long as the state that shares the name of this city has ruled along the lines of the great rebellion of Cain, presuming that they can set up their own tyrannical law and, prov- and, and say that it is just and right to slaughter innocent blood under the, co- under the color of, their own, of the permission of their own legislative bodies, not only is it the city of man, but it has proven itself a city that is blood polluted. Brothers and sisters, as abortion in America continues apace, the land has become polluted as it opens its mouth to receive the blood, the innocent blood of tens of millions of the most vulnerable among us. This is blood pollution of the worst order. Don't be surprised unless America repents if we continue to see an increasingly sickly society plagued by blood pollution where the relationship between our well-being is affected on account of this horrific atrocity that is tolerated among us. We are a country, in spite of our riches and wealth and technology and healthcare, we are plagued by cancer, heart disease, diabetes, addictions, suicide, land confiscation, and land consolidation by tyrannical forces, tyrannical laws. Tyrants are all around us. It is a woeful uh, issue that recurring politically that only gets worse with each administration, each ruling, and each attempt to correct it. Healthcare, the quality of healthcare is decreasing in our land while while the costs continue to skyrocket. Have you ever heard anyone make the connection that perhaps these very things that we suffer, that we fear, that control the consciousness of the American voter and drive them to frantically search for salvation from these potential risks in American life? Have you ever heard anyone draw the connection between abortion and blood pollution that we are no doubt uh, deserving of in our nation? 
Well, the Scripture draws that connection, does it not? Psalm 106, Genesis 4, the legacy of Cain is the legacy of America, and we have doubled down on the sin of Cain to the tune of 60-plus million uh, surgical abortions alone in our land. What will become of a land who does such a thing, who celebrates the legacy of Cain, who cheers at the prospect of more and more, thousands and thousands more of the innocents dying under the color of law from the legislatures of flagship cities and our nation. Well, we see the destiny of cities who did not repent through the course of covenant history. We deserve a situation much like Sodom and Gomorrah unless we repent. Cain's legacy teaches us to fear the Lord, lest we incur great judgment upon our own heads lest we continue to experience a degradation of our well-being, of our livelihood, of our welfare, lest we continue to see that we are cursed from the ground and that the ground no longer yields promise and prosperity for us, but by increasing measure, we become a sickly people who are corrupted, not only in our hearts, but also in other areas of life. This is blood pollution, the evidence and the consequence and the effect of willful negligence with respect to God's law, of high-handed rebellion, of sinning in such a way as to say, God's law is worthless, does not stand. We will erect our own law in its place. We will build our own cities. We will do our own thing. Cain's legacy teaches us the folly of such, a, of such an attitude. This is blood pollution. Secondly, and related, a related idea we see in Cain's legacy, the pathology of unbelief. That is the irrational, the mental illness, so to speak, the uh, behavior of one who does not see things in light of the truth, but processes them in such a narrow, self-centered way that their response is completely foolish. Listen to what Cain says in response to God's declaration of punishment for his sin. He says in verse 13, Behold, punishment. He said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Greater than I can bear. As Cain responds in this way, his protest reveals the unrepentant self-centeredness of the sinner who does not see himself in light of a holy God. Cain has just killed a man in cold blood, and now he's complaining of punishment that spares his life? If Cain got what he deserved, he would be slaughtered. Indeed, a life for a life. The Scriptures go on to say as much. We read the same in, in Numbers 35. We read again in Genesis chapter 9, for man's life I require a life. It is just that a man, that the, that the uh, punishment would be proportional to the crime, yet God spares Cain, yet Cain complains, thinking it unfair, thinking it, uh, thinking, uh, and protesting against the Lord's punishment. In so doing, he, he betrays how much he despises the justice of God. He, and in this attitude, in this response, it shows the depth of his corrupt heart, the deep and systemic unrighteousness of his soul. 
It is nevertheless true. However, as we read, that one thing can be said of Cain's confession. Indeed, man cannot bear the weight of his own sin. It is a crushing burden. When Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear, that in fact is true. Though the punishment at this time that Cain received for his sin was in part by a evidence of God's grace and that he allowed him to live, nevertheless, ultimately speaking, it is true. It is the, it is the case in every, in, uh, or it, it is true in the case of every sinner that we cannot bear the punishment of our own sins. In this sense, the legacy of Cain implicitly cries out for a sin bearer. Will you be crushed under the burden of your own sin? Yes. Is there any salvation and way of escape? Yes, but there is only one way. You cannot build your own city. You cannot run from the consequences of your sin. There are no messiahs or saviors independent of what God alone in His sovereignty, in His mercy, in His sovereign grace has provided. Well, we see through the lineage of another, the legacy of Seth, there would be provided one day a sin bearer, one whose shoulders were strong enough to bear the weight of our sin, one whose stripes and bruises and pierced hands and feet and side were enough, were sufficient to pay, to, to, to bear the punishment that our sin deserved, to pay the price that we owe to a holy God for our willful transgression against His holy law. And so the legacy of Cain teaches us that we need a sin bearer. And without it, we are condemned to a life of despair, a crushing experience of suffering under the weight of our sin. And this is a weight that no one can bear. In fact, it ends in hell itself. And becoming, eventually realizing that the future destiny of all who are unrepentant and die as seeds as a seed of the die in the lineage of the seed of the serpent incur for themselves the wrath of God absorbing upon in their own experience the just penalty for their sin a crushing weight indeed hell itself Cain's legacy not only holds out by way of hallmark the concept of blood pollution an example of the pathology of unbelief, but also common grace. What is common grace? I have a quote for you that helps us to understand. This comes from uh, Louis Burkhoff. He says of common grace that it, quote, curbs the, destruction, the destructive power of sin. It maintains in a measure the moral order of the universe, thus making an orderly life possible. It distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents among men, promotes the development of science and art, and showers untold blessings upon the children of men. This is common grace. This is a term we sometimes use in theology to distinguish the grace of God that is shed generally and broadly upon the earth and in the experience of individuals like Cain to distinguish it from a special grace or a saving grace, a particular manifestation of the grace of God that saves men from their sin in providing a Messiah and a Savior, awakening their heart, regenerating them, 
and, and uh, imputing unto them the righteousness of Christ and taking their sin uh, from them, it having been paid by the work of Christ on Calvary. That is specific grace. It's saving grace. However, a general and common grace is nevertheless evident in the earth, and it was evident in Cain's experience. After all, the Lord did not kill Cain immediately. After all, Cain was allowed to take a wife. He bore children. He had a legacy. He was allowed to build a city. The Lord was long-suffering with him. There were generations that followed in the lineage of Cain. There was culture that continued to develop. We see the arts and sciences, as as, uh, Louis Burkhoff here is quoted in this, uh, uh, as quoted as saying the sciences and arts and so forth are part of God's common grace. We see this in the lineage of Cain and his legacy, in fact. However, none of this points to the, any intrinsic value or merit in Cain and his, and his uh, children that followed him. No, this points to the legacy of the Lord. It points to the power and the grace of our God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace abounding, that your long-suffering is evident, that you allow extended opportunity for repentance, an extended opportunity in this wicked world for more souls to come into the kingdom of God. Finally, this morning, we compare the city of Cain to the city of God. And we see that Cain's legacy is marked by the city of man. This is the first record of a city built in the book of Genesis, but it's not the only one. There's another city builder named Nimrod who is referenced later. And then, of course, the city of Babel becomes a central fixture of the narrative in Genesis 11, as I recall. And these cities mark a concept in Scripture of the city of man. It's man's attempts through everything that he can muster, that he can summon at his disposal, the uh, combined efforts of those around him in society, the assurance of provision and safety by building a wall and strong uh, uh, structures and so forth, by planting and uh, trying to uh, work and to combine efforts and specialized labor to produce uh, you know, food and livestock and to provide for his needs in the future. The city of man is a society that is marked by the unified goal of providing through man's best efforts, labors, and ambitions salvation from his fallen experience. This is the city of man. This is distinguished from the city of God. We see in Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, the record in summary of Abraham. Abraham used to live in a city of man um, in his early experience, but the Lord called him forth to live in intense, a vulnerable, nomadic experience. And as he traveled across the land, leaving the security and assurance of, you know, stone walls behind him and the army that the society could boast, he had to trust the Lord. But he did so in faith, in faith that the Lord would build a city. He trusted in the city whose designer and builder is God, the scriptures say. And so we see in the legacy of Cain right away a distinction. The seed of the serpent seeks to build a city to preserve and to maintain hope for its own future. The seed of woman hopes in the city of God, a place of God's design, a place where the order and the relationships and the future are ultimately secured on the foundation of God's holy word and God's holy plan for salvation. So we see in the legacy of Cain these things, blood pollution, the pathology of unbelief, common grace, and the city of man. Cain's legacy continues through the legacy of one of his children, Lamech. 
As we continue to read, we find an account here that illustrates even more about the nature of man's heart. Listen to what Lamech says to his wives in verse 23, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What can we learn from the legacy of Lamech? Second major point this morning. Well, Cain's, or Lamech's legacy is marked by increasing depravity, a doubling down on the sin of Cain in many ways. Indeed, he, the hallmarks of Lamech's legacy are a despising of the Word of God, lust, greed, lawlessness, double murder, tyranny, arrogance, and remorseless pride, just to name a few. Lamech's legacy is marked by contrast, contrast to another legacy that thankfully it uh, continues alongside. This would be the legacy of Seth. Lamech is the seventh from Adam. Seven, the number seven is an important number in Scripture, often represents completion, and it is used to, uh, rep, to represent in an archetypal way uh, something to uh, identify and to help us understand a concept or a person, persona, or so, uh, something of this nature. And so Lamech's legacy is representative of the legacy of sin in that he is the seventh generation. And as such, the uh, pathologies and the sin and the high-handed disregard for the law of God is evident in this song of his that we've just read. But there is a contrast, and that would be the legacy of Seth. Seventh in the legacy, uh, or seventh from Adam in the uh, line of Seth is another man. His name is Enoch. It says of him in chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And this is the contrast, Lamech to Enoch. In Lamech's case, did he walk with God? Nothing could be further from the truth. He took for himself uh, two wives, breaking God's original uh, design for marriage. He bragged of killing a man for striking him, for taking vengeance and the law into his own hands. Indeed, guilty of double murder. And then, not feeling any remorse, not even complaining or, or worrying that he would be judged for this, but celebrating what he had done to his wives in this uh, song of brazen defiance. This is the legacy of Cain. It is marked by celebration of sin, by depravity that becomes a matter of pride. There was a time in American history where sexual perversion took place, indeed, rampantly in some cases, but generally speaking in culture, it was seen as a shameful act. So it was done in closets, behind closed doors, it was whispered about, it was rumored But there weren't pride marches through the streets of major cities to celebrate adultery or perversion or homosexuality or things of this nature. But we have moved from the legacy of Cain and the secrecy of our bedrooms and hearts to the legacy of Lamech. We now celebrate and sing songs and and have pride marches uh, that celebrate sexual perversion and a redefinition of the terms of marriage and sexual ethics in our image and by our own preferences, and we do so in the streets of the cities of man across this nation. This is the legacy of Lamech. Now, this is a sharp contrast to the legacy of Enoch. Enoch's legacy represents those who trust in the Lord, 
who trust in the future son and his promises. And in the case of Enoch, there was such a closeness and a, a love and a value placed upon God uh, that indeed he escaped death itself as a picture of the salvation to come. Enoch stepped from this fallen world straight into glory where the fullness of salvation was realized as he was able to see his Lord face to face without even tasting death. This is the contrast between the legacy of sin and the legacy of righteousness. Complete depravity and salvation realized. Hope in the city of man celebrating our great, uh, celebrating the depravity and the legacy of the serpent and hope in the city of God, the place of God's design, the ultimate city of refuge to come, the place where all wrongs are set what right, where every tear is washed away, where sin is a, a memory that, or a distant memory and the consequences thereof. There's no more sickness. There is no more discouragement. There's no more depression, no more anxiety. Only the pure and holy and vibrant communion fully restored between man and God, or between man and a holy God. So Cain's legacy is marked by this contrast. Secondly, it's marked by perversion of family. We touched upon this briefly, but note that he is the first uh, in Scripture to embrace polygamy. It says that Lamech took for himself two wives in verse 19, the name of one, Ada, the name of the other, Zillah. And then it goes on to give a record of the sons that he bore by this union. The depravity of the family, the perversion of God's order and the basic institution of society is seen in the legacy of Lamech. He broke God's law. He broke his rules. He decided that he would pursue in the lust of his own heart a restructuring of the family in the, in the very basic order of things. Thus, he takes for himself two wives. But his perversion continues. He begins to instruct his family. He speaks to his wife, wives and he declares to them a pride in his tyrannical lawlessness. He says, Ada, Zilla, hear my voice. Come close to me, my wives. Listen to me, my family. This is my legacy. This is what I want to be known for. This is what I boast. And I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. Cain's revenge is sevenfold. Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This perversion of the family evidences itself in that the message that is proclaimed to, the, to his wives and presumably to his children is one of pride in his own perversion. It's a celebration of self. It's an utter arrogance. And so he stands again in contrast to the law of God, which says that children are to be raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They're not to be raised in a dysfunctional family environment where what they see proclaimed and lived in their parents is a wanton disregard for the holy law of God, a rebellious perversion, and a complete obliviousness to the holiness of the Lord and a celebration of their own sin and depravity. However, this was the legacy of Lamech. Contrast to the legacy of the sons of Seth and a perversion of the family. Nevertheless, again, in God's common grace, there was cultural development. We see that among his sons, Jabal was the father of those who dwelt in tents and livestock. His son Jubal was the father of those who play harp and lyre, or lyre and pipe. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, another son of Lamech. 
He was the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. There are significant cultural developments alongside an evil generation that are allowed to flourish in God's common grace. However, this leads to a great and dangerous whole-scale corruption. The lesson of Lamech's legacy is that technology itself cannot save us. These advancements in the experience, the economy, and the culture of man held out no hope unless they would be stewarded by godliness. These very things that the sons of Lamech were beginning to advance in, indeed, would be their undoing unless they would repent and live in light of God's command to steward according to His terms and His law, the world, the material environment that God had blessed man to partake in. We see evidence of this in our own experience today. Consider the advancement in technology over the last century that has allowed man to harness the energy of the atom. With atomic energy now, we can build a nuclear power plant and we can, you know, uh, power all the uh, ho- homes in a major city, let's say, with, uh, with incredible uh, efficiency. And this allows man to create, uh, you know, uh, transportation and warmth and all of the basic needs that he has are greatly aided by this power source. However, that same technology can be... Uh, incorporated into a nuclear bomb, fall on that same city, and destroy every single one of those homes in an instant. What is the difference? Is the difference technology, or is the difference the heart, the values, uh, the the basic uh, condition of man's soul? Yes, indeed, it's the condition of man's soul. You see, a cultural development holds out no hope for man if he is not submitted to the law of God. If he does not love his neighbor, he may just as well use nuclear power to bomb a city. Whereas if he follows the law of God to love his neighbor as himself, he might harness that very energy to power the neighbors of thousands and thousands across the landscape of a major population center. And so we see in Cain's legacy, there is cultural development, but as the narrative continues to unfold, we see that these things can be used as easily for war as they are for the uh, development of peaceful means for man's flourishing. Finally, in Lamech's legacy, we see this notion of tyrannical autonomy. Lamech ups the ante. He says that his revenge is 77-fold. Now, Cain's revenge was consequences that were delivered by God Himself, they were decreed by God Himself, if one would violate the law of God in taking unjustly the life of Cain. If he was not the magistrate in charge of bringing justice upon someone, therefore it would be murder. And in the case of Cain, uh, the vengeance of the Lord would then come upon him. Lamech says, you know what? If killing Cain deserves this kind of vengeance, well, just striking Lamech deserves vengeance. In other words, Lamech said, the new rules are this. If you even touch me or offend me or strike me in some minor way, guess what? You will die. And then he celebrates this. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. The Scriptures go on to say that vengeance is the Lord's and that we are not to take it into our own hands. We are only to be instruments of justice insofar as God has delegated to us through His agency namely the sword and the civil magistrate, uh, the right to act on his behalf. 
When we rewrite the laws in our own image, when we take vengeance into our own hands, when we presume to supersede the law of God, to supplant the terms of justice, we make ourselves we, uh, into or out to be a, tyrann- a tyrant, a lawless tyrant in our autonomy or self-rule. We establish ourselves as the new king on the throne, as a law or a God instead of the Lord. We exalt ourselves in the place of Him and establish in this heart and attitude, in the lawlessness of man, a tyranny. Lamech has established himself in this act, in this song of celebration of his own depravity. He's established himself as a tyrant. And this proclamation is an act of blasphemous, sacrilegious defiance. And so we have Cain's legacy and Lamech's legacy primarily illustrating to us the depth of human depravity. Now, the fact that God would have any patience in a land marked by these characteristics, the hallmark of this legacy, showcases indeed His grace. The grace of God is showcased realizing how little we deserve it, how little the nation of America deserves it. And just like Cain and his legacy and the land that was ruled by the influence of Lamech and the families that were influenced by this corrupt Uh, By this corrupt uh, patriarch, indeed, the grace of God is abounding. Let us close this morning considering a third legacy. And this is by contrast to the prior two. This is the legacy of Seth. Again, just two verses this morning, yet there is so much here to glean, and we will expand on them in future weeks. Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, or to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. As the narrative continues, there is a callback to Adam and Eve, is there not? We've gone through five generations, seven from Adam of uh, Lamech uh, up uh, through to Lamech, and now there's a callback to Adam and Eve to trace the legacy of the seed of the woman. And as we see these moments here in this flashback, we hear echoed the heart cry of Eve. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. This reminds us of the heart cry of Eve where she hoped that Cain would hold out hope for her in Genesis 4.1. After his birth, she had said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. We've remarked in weeks past how devastating it must have been when Cain not only proves himself wicked instead of the son of future hope, but indeed kills his righteous brother. Now it is clear neither Cain nor Abel will be the promised seed. And so Adam and Eve must have been distraught where will, the, where will salvation come if sin has so corrupted our line as to murder one son and render the other uh, totally unrighteous in that act or show him unrighteous in that act? And so their hope is rekindled with the birth of another. When Seth is born, Eve cries out, the Lord has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Seth's legacy is marked by the concept of the appointed son, His name, in fact, means appointed son. There's a close relationship between his name in Hebrew, Seth, and this idea of the appointed one. 
and Eve recognizes as much in her confession. But this notion of appointed son is carried through covenant history all the way until the new, new covenant, which is delivered in Christ our Lord. Galatians 4.4 says of Christ that He was born in the fullness of time. That is, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Christ is the appointed Son. In between Seth and Christ, there are other appointed ones. As we remarked recently, the vial of oil was grasped by the prophet Samuel and he poured it upon the head of the appointed king. And this was David, of course. God reiterates and expands his covenant to David. He says of him that a son will reign and rule on his throne forever. David was an appointed king in the lineage of Seth. And this, this king pointed forth as, uh, as a type, as an archetype of another. And one day Christ himself acknowledged upon his baptism, was appointed by the Lord, born of a virgin. And all of the promises that were held out to Eve and Adam of hope and a future son were realized in the appointed one to come, who in the fullness of time took the weight of our sin upon his shoulders, became a sin bearer so that we may not be crushed like Cain under the weight of, uh, that our sin deserved. And so in this moment in the future... The appointed line of Seth realized the fulfillment of its prophetic hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the legacy of Seth. The legacy of Seth is marked not just by the appointed son that uh, pointed forward to the one to come, Christ himself, but also by corporate worship. Notice verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord much like our gathering today. From the earliest days of mankind, the remnant, the faithful, those who placed hope in God's provision for their salvation called upon His name. They no doubt shared with, them, with each other and with their children the hope that had been proclaimed before. There would come a son of Eve whose heel would be bruised, but that heel would crush the serpent's head. One day a son will be born. We place our hope, our fortunes, our future, our joy, and our faith in that one to come. And so they would cry out in their songs of worship and so forth, hoping in the name of the Lord. That is the renown, the reputation, the promise, the covenant that would be realized when God continued to unfold His plan of salvation through history, culminating in the appointed son to come. And so corporate worship rises from the remnant, from the line of Seth, from the earliest days as the people call upon the name of the Lord. Would you save us from this wicked generation? Would you provide for us hope and a future son? Would you deliver us from our own sin and from the consequences of sin that plague us in our human experience? Finally, this morning, Seth's legacy is marked by a promise in the future, for vengeance for Abel. You know, in our text today, there is an interesting question that is raised. The vengeance of Cain is, uh, is referenced, it says in verse 15, anyone kills Cain, says the word of the Lord, decree of vengeance. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Lamech remarks of vengeance again, this time in reference to the lawlessness of man, 
by a different standard. He says Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. In other words, there's an acknowledgement in the case, humanistically in the case of Lamech, by the Word of God in the case of Cain, that sin will be avenged, that a death and crimes will be paid for. But this raises the question, what of Abel's revenge? Where, where is justice for Abel? The innocent blood of Abel was absorbed by the ground as he was killed at the hand of his brother. What of this moment in time? Where would hope be for the vengeance of Abel? The sin, that, that great sin against him, would it be judged? Yes, it would. The Scriptures continue to hold out hope for judgment for, the, for Abel, or for justice for Abel. Jesus references the blood that cries out for the same from the ground in Matthew 23, 29 through 36. The blood of the martyrs cries out indeed from the ground, uh, so to speak, in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. In other words, the promise of the seed of Seth, of the legacy of the appointed son, held out hope not only for salvation for those whose sins were covered by the sin bearer, but also for justice for those whose lives were taken, uh, were, were taken in cold blood. What of the vengeance of Abel? It would come through Seth's legacy. The perfect judge would come through this family line, and he will set all things right in his perfect time. If he tarries yet another day, brothers and sisters, may we take the opportunity to yet cry to those who yet remain under the crushing burden of their own sin. Today is the day of salvation, even as we marvel at his long-suffering and grace. Again, remember that the grace of God, his mercy, his salvation is showcased in realizing how little we deserve it. We are sinners like Cain. We are sinners like Lamech. We live in a world colored by the evil of Lamech and Cain's legacy. Of We live among cities like Babel who hold out hope and salvation and man's design and man's legislation. May we be faithful to proclaim in this wicked generation that there is justice to come if we do not repent. There is judgment on the horizon for those who die in their sin under its crushing weight and burden. Nevertheless, if they place hope in the appointed Son who came through the line of Seth, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, there is held out for them hope in the grace and mercy of our God who died in our place on Calvary's tree. Let us close in prayer. O oh Lord, we are so thankful for the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray, Father, that if we are tempted to be discouraged by the weight of our own sin, the crushing burden of guilt on account of our transgression of your law, or if we are tempted to be discouraged because we live in a land that seems to continue to sin with a high hand and there is no hope on the horizon, it would appear for revival. I pray that our hopes would be encouraged and strengthened as we realize afresh the miracle that you have done in our own hearts, saving us from the burden of our own sin and promise, holding out hope in the promises of the covenant which will be fully realized when we step like Enoch from this veil of tears into glory. And also I pray that you would give us hope that the power of this proclamation is uh, sufficient 
to convict the most wicked hearts, the most wicked of sinners, and to call a nation like ours unto repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, the duty is ours, and I pray that we would be faithful to obey your holy word. But the results are in your sovereign hands, and so we pray that you would have mercy upon us, but not at the cost of your glory, saving yourself for yourself a great remnant, even in this wicked day. All to the praise of your great name. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.